Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. One of the keys to a healthy, long-term romantic relationship is maintaining physical intimacy. I'm not just talking about sex, though. For many reasons, non-sexual physical intimacy is just as important, if not more so. Touch is a form of communication that can reveal everything from your partner's current mood state to their stress level. In addition, touch stimulates the release of oxytocin, a hormone involved in feelings of bondedness. Touch can therefore bring you closer to your partner, both physically and psychologically. Touch is so vital for relationship success that it has become a cornerstone of most sex therapy programs. Masters and Johnson, the founders of the modern sex therapy movement, recognized this nearly a half century ago, which is how Sensate Focus, a couple's exercise that involves promoting relaxation through non-sexual touch, came to be a standard therapeutic technique. It may surprise you to learn that many sexual and relationship problems can be solved through this kind of touch alone, without the need for medication or psychotherapy. Touch can not only serve as a powerful remedy for problems in our intimate lives, but it can also make it less likely that such problems will even emerge or become serious in the first place. So let's talk about touch. In today's show, we're going to do a deep dive into why touch is so powerful, as well as why affectionate touch is one of the best ways to initiate sex and to have great sex. We're also going to explore practical tips for bringing more touch into your relationships. I am joined by Dr. Michael Banasey, an award-winning professor in social neuroscience and a science communicator. He has received multiple prizes for his contributions to psychological science, including a medal from the British Psychological Society. His primary areas of study include emotion perception, empathy, social connection, touch, and well-being. Touch matters. Handshakes, hugs, and the new science on how touch can enhance your well-being is his first book. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit KinseyInstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. So you recently published a book on the science of touch that explores the important role that touch plays in our overall well-being. There is so much that you explore in this book, but we're going to focus on the role of intimate touch today. But before we dive into that, let me first ask for the story behind your book. So what is it that prompted you to write a book on this subject? Why talk so much about touch? Yeah, well, I've been a touch scientist for many years, um, and that's because I'm I'm really interested in how we build social relationships with people, how we form them, and how we maintain them. And touch, as we'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure, is so important in that process. But when I started my research journey, actually, there was surprisingly little research on the importance of touch. So I was drawn in that way. But of course, 
like a lot of people on a very much more kind of personal side, when the pandemic hit, um, we were actually in the middle then of doing a very large global survey of about 40,000 people on what touch meant to them. And we were doing some shows on the radio. We had a week-long series of TV shows, uh, radio shows, I should say. But during that same period, I began to be missing touch in my own life because pandemic restrictions were meaning that I was, you know, I mean, I, I was living with a partner. I have, We had touch between us, which was really a great thing and lucky to have. But I was missing touch from from family members, from friends, right? Even going to the supermarket and being able to touch a product and feel what it felt like. And I began to then just want to, even though I thought I knew the science, it was more that lived experience of, of missing touch made me want to explore it a bit more. And and as I say, with the survey and the, the radio shows we were doing, other people were reaching out to me, telling me their stories and their experiences, which resonated. And I just thought, look, we need to, it's, it's the right time to be discussing this and it's the right time to share some of those thoughts and try and get those experiences out. So that was kind of the story of how the book came together, really. It was uh, one of the good things of the pandemic, maybe, but also, I don't know, it uh, came out of the, the, the sadness of the pandemic of not being able to touch. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure so many people can relate to that because during that lockdown period and the subsequent period with all of these social restrictions, collectively, we kind of were all touch starved in a lot of ways because we couldn't go about our lives in the way that we did in the past. So I think that helped us all to realize just how important touch is in our everyday lives. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're right. I mean, so like just before the lockdowns, you know, about 54% of people said they didn't have enough touch in their lives. But as we got into those pandemic restrictions, it was more like 80%, right? It was getting incredibly high. People just craving touch, saying they kind of had touch hunger. And I think that really... You know, touch is a bit of a hidden sense. We use it so often, but it's not sometimes until it's gone that we realize, oh, wow, what, what an impact that can be having on us. Yeah, it's true for so many things in our lives. We often don't appreciate it until it's gone. So let's talk about intimate touch. I think a good place to start here is with kissing, because this is a form of touch that seems to be super important for a lot of relationships, with some studies finding that kissing is a powerful predictor of relationship satisfaction. It's also often one of the first forms of touch that we have with a new partner, if you think, for example, of people kissing goodnight on the first date. So tell us a bit about why we kiss in the first place and also what it is about kissing that makes it such a powerful thing in our relationships. Yeah, I mean, kissing is this fascinating thing that you see it across so many cultures worldwide, but not necessarily always in a romantic or sexual way, right? But it, it could be that kind of peck on the cheek goodnight that, that comes through. And, and it is a really important way of, again, how we build and maintain bonds in our in our relationships, and particularly early on, if we're talking about romantic relationships, you know, there's studies now showing that, you know, Simply identifying someone as a bad kisser, the kind of, I suppose, might well anecdotally know that, the kind of turn-off factor that can have. So one study famously just gave people dating profile descriptions of people. All the information was the same for all the profiles, but for one set of people, these people were a good kisser, for another, they were bad kissers. And just simply changing that label of good or bad kisser meant that, you know, the good kissers were more likely to get dates, they were more likely to have interest in casual sex, long-term relationships, you know, all these kind of components. And... Part of the reason why we think that that happens is um, when we kiss, we can come physically close to one another. And in that sense, we might be able to pick up on a variety of 
I suppose, chemosensory signals, so the kind of signals that might be harder to detect, you know, things like smell and taste and, and these things, which might also be linked to, I suppose, our genetic compatibility is the way you might want to think about this. So people talk about something called the MHC complex, and people might be aware of there's been research before showing, for instance, that if we're given the T-shirts of people that smell different to us, we sometimes prefer those that smell a little bit different to us. And people connect this to this thing called the MHC because it's kind of thought if we have slightly more variety in our MHC genes, that might mean that our mate that we're choosing might lead to a more kind of, I suppose, productive offspring, right? Because you're going to get that mix of the genetic makeup. And so that's one of the reasons. But of course, there is a much more social reason behind it, right? And I think actually kissing is a really, I mean, as you alluded to, it's a really important thing as a marker for how we, I suppose, identify our partners and maybe them responding to our needs as well. And going back to that bad kisser example, like why would it be a bad kisser? Why is it such a bad thing? Well, we can probably all think about a scenario where if you've got someone who's kissing you terribly and maybe if you try to change that and, and but they don't respond to your needs or they don't do that, I mean, what kind of is that going to make you think about other aspects of the relationship, right? It is, it's an important signal in that way, um, sociologically. And I think there's a whole different components from biology right the way through to that more kind of, yeah, psychological meaning that can impact it. Yeah. So there are several different theories about why we kiss. So you mentioned, you know, there might be an evolutionary reason for it. It may be a way of kind of helping us to sniff out, you know, the most compatible partner for us. But it's also a way of, you know, fully experiencing your partner. You're up close and personal when you're kissing, right? And in addition to that, you're learning a lot in that kiss. You know, a kiss can convey so much. Now, this all has me thinking about what does it mean to be a good kisser or a bad kisser? And that's inherently subjective. Everybody kisses a little bit differently. I can think of good kisses and bad kisses. Maybe the ones that I didn't like, somebody else would like. So it does get a little bit tricky when you're trying to define like scientifically what is a good kiss or a bad kiss. But in one of the studies that I've seen, the good kisses tend to be the ones that really convey this strong emotional element to it where there's like some intensity. You feel really connected to another person. And the bad kisses tend to be more about unfavorable physical qualities like their tongue was just going way too deep or you know they had <laughs> excess saliva or something like that it was just it was on it was on a journey it was going a bit wild right it's those kind of dynamics right yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right those bad kisses and those very physical properties but yeah those good kisses there's so many dynamics to them, right? The context, how you're feeling, whether you're anxious or not yourself, right? It's, it's that reciprocal nature between you, those, those psychological and situational factors that I think can really play a role. Yeah, I am very much a biopsychosocial theorist in everything that I do. And so you got to think about, you know, the biological properties of the kiss itself, coupled with, you know, how you're feeling in that moment, your own unique psychology, your past lived experiences, coupled with the particular context that you're in, right? So the same kiss that happens in different contexts might be experienced very differently. So kissing is a complicated thing, but it does tend to be this very powerful, important part of romantic relationships. But as you discuss in your book, and as I've written about on my blog before, kissing isn't a universal romantic behavior. So while you might feel like kissing is super important in your own life, it's not necessarily important to everyone around the world. So our culture seems to play a role in shaping the types of intimate touch that we desire. So can you tell us a little bit about that? How does culture influence our preferred forms of intimate touch? 
Yeah, so, I mean, you're absolutely right. So in terms of, of kissing in that kind of romantic or sexual way, I suppose, you you find that happens surprisingly less often across cultures than you expect, right? So I think it's, it's more like kind of 46% was one of the statistics that came out at one point about that. And the amount of, I suppose, romantic or sexual kissing that people engage in seems to be connected to how industrialised our region is. And of course, as I talk about this in the book, right, we always have to be careful not to link correlation with causation. You know, more more skyscrapers doesn't necessarily cause more kissing, but um, there definitely is that link. So that's one side to it, for sure, which I think is, is important to think about. But with regards to some of the other components, there are now also other types of touch that people are looking at as well, not just kissing, right? So there was recently a, a very large study that looked across many different countries worldwide to look at what kind of things impact the diversity of affectionate touch that we engage in and that might be things like hugging hand holding it could be kissing on the cheek rather than maybe kissing in a romantic or or sexual sense in that context and and actually some of the things that appear to be particularly important in those contexts were things like the level of conservatism of a region so how conservative values were there were differences with regards to things like climate as well so differences between warmer and colder climates in terms of how close people might want to get to one another and this disconnects to also wider cultural differences work that comes out about personal space um so there's some very famous work showing that people from warmer countries tend to prefer to stand closer to strangers they prefer to be physically closer in that way or more open to it i should say but then conversely when it comes to people who we're more closer to actually people from colder climates appear to want to get more closer to those who we're more closer to and and people potentially connect this to the fact of the importance of those social bonds and the warmth in in those colder climates so it's a complex picture right there's there's factors like where you're from in the world there's factors connected to things like values like levels of conservatism or not there are also differences with age but what i should say is we have to keep in mind a lot of this research um in different studies people are often talking about different types of touch and then also touch between different people so they're not always for instance comparing like for like it won't necessarily be touch towards a partner so that large study worldwide that looked at all these different effective touch behaviors like hugging kissing hand holding they were looking at like how someone might also engage with tools touching their child or things like this as well so there's there's differences that play out in that as well Yeah. And as you're describing this, touch is this very complex, very nuanced phenomenon in so many different ways. But I was also thinking while you were talking about the differences in climates about how, you know, I'm somebody who just tends to run hot. So my tolerance for touch, you know, tends to be like a little bit smaller than some other people's because I'm like, now I'm just too hot. Like, get off me. Right. (laughs) Yeah, just just give me give me that pause. Even if we're somebody who particularly, you know, at baseline, when we're feeling really comfortably at whatever temperature we want to be, we might love touch, but those contexts can change it, right? So our own our own body temperature. And I suppose even if our body temperature was fine, I mean you, you could have a day where it just happens that someone's touching you loads. So by the end of it, maybe you're just touched out, right? You're like, please don't touch me anymore, kind of thing. So there's also that dynamic with touch, you know, it can vary a lot between us, but even within the same person, it can change from one moment to another. And your experiences might change over time. I think one of the things that I, I talk about in the book, particularly in relationships, like long-term romantic relationships, is how often do we actually stop and talk to our partners about, you know, have their preferences for touch changed? You know, are they the same as they were before? We might be assuming we're we're still showing support by one type of tactile behavior, but actually things have shifted and that does change over the lifespan. And these are the kind of things I think we need to become a bit more aware about, particularly because 
uh, affectionate touch in romantic relationships is often connected to couples being happier, connected to things like less stress, relationship satisfaction. So we want to think about how can we maximize those benefits, I think. Yeah, there's so much to dive into there. But takeaway from this is if you want to touch me, turn the AC down first. because <laughs> I don't want to get too hot. So you brought up hugging, which is another very common form of intimate touch that often occurs in everyday life, not just with romantic partners, but with various other people. And I think in your book, you talked about how on average, people usually hug about six times a day. And on the weekends, they hug more than that. So, you know, this is a common part of everyday life, at least it was pre-pandemic, as things are, you know, getting back to normal, people are hugging more than they were. But hugs can have this huge emotional impact. And research finds that hugging seems to have a lot of benefits. Benefits. You know, it can reduce stress and it's linked to better health. So tell us a little bit about the science of hugging and why that embrace seems to be so beneficial for us and for our relationships. Yeah, I mean, hugging is a, it's a topic that I'm very dear to my heart because it's an interesting thing that it's something we all do. I think, well, I say we all do. Some people don't hug, obviously, but it's such a common part, particularly of my culture in the UK and, and I think, you know, in other regions worldwide. And we often might just think, well, it feels good, but we don't stop and actually think about what are the impacts of that. And there's actually surprisingly little research on it, but it's something that's been growing over the last 10 years or so. And and what this has been showing is that, uh, you know, people who hug more often, they can, you know, have better responses to stressful situations. It might even impact on their immune system response um, if they get a virus or something like this. So one of my, my favorite studies to talk about is a study from the mid-2010s. It was done in the Pittsburgh area um, of America. These authors effectively um, tracked people for 14 days and in those 14 days they were just asked to do a diary like report how often were they hugged and a variety of other things a subset of these people came into the lab and they were given a, a virus they were given kind of like a cold basically and they were then quarantined and the, the researchers monitored you know just um how does that virus develop and they found that the people who hugged more for the 14 days before were less likely to develop the symptoms i should really note here you know it was the 14 days before right it's not once they've got the virus because maybe we don't want to pass our germs around etc <laughs> but i think i mean that's a really a really interesting factor right of, well why is it that the 14 days hugging more would, would do that and and in that study one of the reasons was connected to the fact that hugs convey social support and we know that gestures that show us that somebody's there and supporting us can be really beneficial to our physical as well as our mental health but you know what we're now trying to understand is are there some also some physical properties of the hugs that might matter too because it wasn't all explained by social support and this is something that research is now looking at but one of the things that i find really interesting about hugs as well and this is coming out of the, the more recent research is that it's not just hugs from other people that can make a difference so there was a really recent study that um basically took people and said to them, right, I want you to perform mental maths out loud and give a speech in public with no preparation, which depending on your inclination, that might be pretty stressful. For me, it would be. <laughs> and basically for these people, some of them had a hug from someone they cared about before they did this. Others had no touch at all. And another group were told, okay, we've got no one here to touch you, but actually why don't you try and engage in some kind of self-soothing touch, right? Something that relaxes you yourself. And, and these people just typically hug themselves. And then when they gave the speech and when they did the stressful task, their measures of cortisol, a hormone connected to a stress response, was measured. And what was found was that being hugged by somebody else, but also 
just hugging yourself, um, actually reduce these cortisol levels. They kind of made the event, you know, both subjectively and physiologically less stressful. For me, this is really important, right? Because increasingly now, you know, even if you're in a relationship, you might often find in a particularly remote and distant world that you can't have that person around to show you that hug, give you that support. But it's kind of nice and promising that you can find ways to do that, even going solo, which I think is a, a kind of nice message that we can also convey these days. Yeah, so many fascinating things there. Like one, the things people will do for science, like <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go in and I'm going to allow researchers to expose me to a virus. Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> not something that just anybody would be willing to do. But a good takeaway from that is that you can't hug the virus out. But if you're getting a lot of hugging, you know, and that physical intimacy beforehand, if you have that as a baseline in your life, that might actually make you more resilient to disease. Like that is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, really powerful effect. And again, the kind of thing we don't we don't stop and think about, right? When we're when we're touching someone. Yes, absolutely. So there's a section in your book where you talk about a well-known study on sexual initiation, where couples kept a diary of their sexual activities and what they did to initiate sex every time they had it. Now, people used a bunch of different initiation techniques, from walking out of the bathroom naked to verbally requesting sex. But physical touch was the most used cue, and it was also one of the most universally recognized. Like, it was pretty unambiguous that your partner was trying to initiate sex. So why is touch so important when it comes to something like sexual initiation, and why might it work better than some other approaches? Yeah, well, many reasons for it. Physiologically, we've got a variety of erogenous zones on the body. We've got a huge density of tactile receptors in these, and they respond to all sorts of things like, you know, pressure, vibration, heat, etc. So we're really sensitive to touch. So our body's picking those cues up and very quickly. More, I suppose, again, that kind of psychological, that kind of biosocial kind of component to it as well is to think about the fact that, you know, Touch is a cue that we use so often in our lives and particularly to build closeness and physical intimacy and to maintain it. And one of the ways it's been connected to this is through the release of hormones like oxytocin. And oxytocin is a hormone involved in calming us, relaxing us, which can, of course, be important. Of course, you know, you might also want to be aroused in, in the context of sex as well. But there's a case of not being threatened, which is kind of important. In, and that trust component of sex, which, um, you know, I think hormones like oxytocin are often been connected to. But then there's also a, a wider part to that as well in that, you know, oxytocin does play this role in bonding and, and it's connected in that sense. So there's a variety of signals that come from touch, you know, physiologically that can connect us and, and pull that through. And of course, I think there's other elements to this as well. Touch is a, a very much a form of nonverbal communication. It's a form of showing we're connected and reading and understanding one another. So through touch, I suppose we can people can often gauge their partner's response, you know, adjust their actions accordingly. And we kind of talked about this in the context of kissing, right? I mean, if someone isn't quite responding or reciprocating in that way or giving you those cues back, there's there's that component. So I guess it's this kind of mix of biology, sensory experience, communication, and to a degree also exploration, discovery. I mean, I think if you go back to Masters and Johnson, right, and the work that they did years back in, in the context of, of, of sex therapy, I mean, they also developed non-sexual touch exercises, right, which are important to that process, which are very much about discovery of the body and that type of component. So 
it's been known for a long while. And I think, you know, we, we often pick up and touch in this way for many of those reasons. Yeah. And as I was reading through your book, I couldn't help but think back frequently to the work of Masters and Johnson, who prescribed what they called sensate focus as part of most of their treatment plans, which is about non-sexual intimate touch. And in many cases, that was enough to resolve sexual difficulties that couples had because it just brought them to this greater state of connection. And it's still very widely used today. It's not to say that simply touching each other more is the solution for every sexual problem, but it speaks to the fact that many of us just kind of fall out of touch with our partners. And so simply by introducing more touch back into the relationship can actually be a very effective way of dealing with sexual disconnection and desire discrepancies and so forth. But it can also be this helpful way of initiating sex. So you can think of affectionate touch as a form of foreplay, and it works based on the way you said, where it helps to reduce stress and it's this form of nonverbal communication. And so, you know, you can use that as a way to sort of help relax and get in the mood because, you know, for a lot of people, desire for sex isn't spontaneous. It doesn't just kick in right away. You need some warm-up period and that's where affectionate touch can kind of help bring out some of this responsive sexual desire. Now, there's a lot of research looking at the connection between sex and well-being, finding that people who have sex more often tend to score higher on a range of measures of well-being. However, there's an important caveat to this, which is that the association is strongest when affectionate touch is present. So it's not necessarily the sex itself that's crucial, but the amount of affection that's coupled with sex. So tell us a little bit about that and the important role that affection plays in unlocking the benefits of sex. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's across a whole range of age groups, right, from young adults right the way through to old adults, there's a lot of work showing that, you know, engaging in or being sexually active more regularly can be connected with better well-being. But increasingly now, what a lot of this research is starting to show is that, you know, one of the important things that sex allows us to do is have also non-sexual tactile contact, right? They allow us to become physically closer and, you know, touch. And that might even be, you know, let's say a hug after sex. That could be any range of different dynamics, right? But also in the build-up and post. And there's all this work now coming out, for instance, particularly in older adults, all of this, it's been shown that actually engaging activities like kissing and cuddling, they sometimes are preferred to having sex. And, and those forms of tactile affection, which are often linked to engaging in sexual activity for these individuals, but no, maybe not always, they may not involve always sexual intercourse, they were just as good in some of the research. Now they come out as being just as good for global life satisfaction as engaging in sexual activities themselves. In a not dissimilar way, you know, I talk about this a bit in the book, there was a, a study by researchers at the University of Freiburg who um, looked at younger adults. And again, what they found there was that there was a relationship between more frequent sexual activity and overall, overall well-being. So more frequent sex, greater overall well-being. But what they found was that people who had more sex, part of the reason this was there was this benefit and well-being was because they showed more affection and by showing that affection and that that care and that component to one another it was kind of what that was potentially driving some of these benefits and well-being and a lot of this goes back to what we spoke about earlier right that touch and affection showing that to one another showing that kind of social support it's really important to build our closeness it's really important in that sense but it also does have these impacts on our health and our, and our well-being and other spaces there's something about knowing there is someone physically 
there for you in the world, I suppose, that, that can bring some of those benefits. So that's, that's certainly where a lot of that literature plays out. And it aligns with a broader thing, you know, showing, which really this is research that goes back from the 1970s up to now that's shown that couples, I suppose, who tend to touch more, even in a non-sexual way, they tend to be more happier. They tend to, you know, whether it's a back rub, whether it's a gentle caress or a hug. And the research on that is showing it's not necessarily Let's let's talk about something like a back rub. Even there, it's not necessarily just the person receiving the back rub who benefits. It's the partner giving it as well. There's something important about giving affection that can not only help your partner who's receiving it, but also you in the context of your own mental health, your own stress levels can change by that. And there's something we gain from that. Yeah, this has me thinking back to several previous episodes of the show. One was an interview with Dr. Amy Muse, who has done some research on post-sex affection. And what she finds in that work is that couples who engage in more cuddling and other intimate activities after sex tend to be the most satisfied. It's linked to increases in relationship and sexual satisfaction over time. I believe it's also linked to increases in sexual desire. So there does seem to be something to that element of affection during sex. And then also on the topic of back rubs, I interviewed Dr. David Frederick a while back, and he's done a lot of work on what keeps passion alive in couples long-term. And there are dozens of acts of sexual variety that are linked to keeping passion alive. But one of the things that's on there is giving each other mini massages or back rubs, right? So there is something to that idea that it really does seem to help couples to stay connected and might even help to boost passion as well. But one thing that I think is important to think about here in terms of, you know, what are takeaways from this for listeners is that, you know, if you think about something like the love languages, which we've also talked about on the show, Physical touch is one of them, but that's not everybody's love language. For some people, they don't want touch. You know, that goes back to what we were discussing earlier. So can you just talk briefly about the importance of not making blanket recommendations about just touch each other more and that's going to solve all of your problems, right? You really need to focus more on what is it that you want and your partner wants and getting on the same page about that. Yeah, I mean, all these benefits we're talking about are when touch is viewed as supportive, right? When touch is viewed as something that the person wants and desires. And I think, you know, if, if someone doesn't want to be touched, then you've got to be respectful of that. And one of the the nice things, I guess, about the wider message about sharing and giving affection is there's a whole diversity of ways in which you can give and share affection and get some of these benefits. You know, it could be writing a note, it could be making them a morning coffee, it could be all sorts of different components, right? So you shouldn't just assume more is always better. You shouldn't, you know, assume that touch is going to solve everything in a relationship. You know, for me, I often talk about there's a sense of quality over quantity. And this is because, you know, there is also research showing that even some people who don't necessarily like lots of touch, if you get the amount of touch right, you know, that little bit that they do want, they'll still benefit from touch too. And so there's a balance in that as well, you know. So, and a lot of this is often connected to different attachment styles, right? People talk about people who are more avoidant and they may be more independent in their relationships. And then you've got people maybe more anxious and seek touch more and physical closeness more. But again, even people who maybe want or more independent and may not necessarily say that they want lots of touch, they still can benefit from the right type of touch, but it's got to be meeting their needs. And, and meeting their needs is a really important thing to try to understand. And I think we understand that by communicating, through talking, through listening, by picking up on cues, you know. And one of the things we have to be really careful of, and this is not just in the context of intimate touch, I think it's across the board, right, is it's very easy, and we know this from social psychology, to map our preferences onto others. We have a kind of bias to do that, you know, as, as, as humans. And we have to be really mindful of this, because just because 
you love touch or you love a particular type of touch doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be right or the right thing for the for your partner and i think that's something that we have to be uh very careful to unpack and it's right that we do highlight that nuance of touch in this context yeah this has me thinking about my very first course i ever taught in graduate schools on health psychology we talked a lot about social support and how the key to effective social support is to provide optimal matching where you're providing the kind of support that the other person really needs in that moment you know for example if i was stranded on the side of the road because my car broke down and my partner drives up and just gives me a big hug and then drives away like that's emotional support but that's not the kind of support i need in that moment like i need you to call the fucking triple a and get me out of there right? so you know sure. not all support is the same and it has to have that you know optimal matching between the person who's giving it and the person who's receiving it and sometimes we're providing support in ways that our partners don't perceive or that they perceive in a totally different way so it requires being very in tune with one another but i have one last question for you on this topic of intimate touch and it goes to the end of your chapter where you mention how people should try to make affection and not love. So can you walk us through that a little bit and give us some practical tips on how we can bring more affection into our lives in order to tap into those benefits? Yeah, make affection, not love. It's a phrase I borrowed actually from Tracy Cox's book on Great Sex Starts at 50, um, which I think she borrowed from another book before it, I think. She's another previous guest on the show. Such a great book. and But I think the terminology is so important, right? Because ultimately what we're talking about here is that sharing affection can be one of the most important parts of getting the benefits from intimate touch and from sex and from other components. And I think, I mean, I talk about this in the book. I kind of say, well, there's different ways to think about how we can do this. I mean, first of all, I talk about this idea we've got to understand. We've got to understand, you know, where do we actually want to go? You know, what is the affection touch that we as an individual desire from people? Because, and, you know, think about how is it that we approach affection touch you know are we the type of person who who has sex and then we don't engage in any touch afterwards or do we you know do we go in for a couple how, how do we approach that we've got to think about our own preferences because understanding ourselves is a really key way to start to understand others and how we do that communication is a core part naturally and i know that that's you know in any kind of i suppose discussion of relationships communication comes out as, as a word but Communication, I think, is about one, sharing our own preferences and where they come from, but also listening, right? And by listening, I mean actually hearing what someone is saying and, and acting upon it and not necessarily just hearing, right? Because sounds come in, but we've got to listen to the actions, words, we've got to respond to them and show people that are acting upon them. I think there's other factors that play a role here. And again, in the book, I talk also about the importance of noticing affection because, you know, sometimes it can be quite frustrating if we're looking for a type of affection, it's not coming. And there's a sense there of we have to recognize that we've identified how we show it, but maybe someone else shows it in a different way. And we want to look and try and unpack that. Think about this noticing factor. And then, of course, inviting. That's the other part that I talk about in the book as well. So, you know, if we want to bring more affection into our relationships, well, we also maybe want to invite it. We want to model that out. And if we find we're not getting that back, then I think, you know, obviously there's discussions we can have with our partners in different ways. But also, I think, keep in mind that we might just have a partner where it's just not going to work and we're going to communicate that and understand. And that doesn't necessarily mean that relationship is doomed or anything like that. I mean, there are other ways we can bring touch into our lives, you know, self-touch is, is one example we spoke about that but there might be other people who we could hug and gain those components from but of course if you both are going to work on it together and you're going to try and notice and you're going to communicate you're going to bring that in the one other thing that i think is really vital this is patience 
and consistency because like anything in life you know when things are going well it's good it's you know we can we can roll with that but but there's going to be those moments where it's not quite going right and we've got to be patient we've got to be understanding because we're, we're all bringing our past our present our future experiences when it comes to touch and we're, we're learning and we don't often really stop i don't think and actually talk about each other what are our preferences what are our touch preferences what's our touch persona i mean it sounds kind of strange sometimes to say it but actually Let's go on that journey together, better understand it, be patient with one another and try to explore it. These are some of the things that I like to flag in the book, at least. Yeah, and I think that's all fantastic relationship advice. Lots of different things, practical things that you can try there. And if all else fails, you can go to a cuddle party. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> thank you for, for sure. sharing all of that. <laughs> so thank you for this amazing conversation, Michael. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book? Yeah, sure. So if they want to go to Bannessy.com, which is B-A-N-I-S-S-Y.com, my name's uh, always a bit of an unusual one. So um, you can find out all information about me, about my lab's research, and there's information there about the book and where you can uh, pick it up in a range of retailers worldwide. And I will be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Thanks for having me. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Until next time.